This is how we overcome We're moving out Keep us up Reaching to the world Arms open Arms open Yeah This is how we practice Great well, welcome back to Crazy Fate Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And we are glad you're with us, friends, here in um, this delightful January season when things are cold. And the best thing to do is find a comfy chair or couch and grab a book. Actually, that has kind of prompted our conversations uh, here. This new series we're going to be taking a look at here in these next several weeks. Um, We are going to ask each of the folks around our imaginary microphone and table here to share a book that has been important in your faith journey in some way besides the Bible. Um, Obviously, for pastors, interaction with the Bible is not just a part of our work, but part of our spirituality. So, yep, we're all Bible people, all Bible readers, and all Bible preachers. But uh, sometimes it's helpful to explore in that space between what do I read for entertainment and the Bible? Like, there are things in the middle that are helpful, sometimes because you really like them, sometimes because they are thought-provoking or challenging. Sometimes they're practical. So we're going to get a wide a wide variety of kinds of books uh, in these coming weeks. Each of us is going to get to highlight something that uh, has been an important read for them. And we'll sort of talk about why. So um, Erica, what would you like to share with us here on Show and Tell? So today on Show and Tell, um, this is a book I read a couple years ago. Actually, Steve, I think you're the one that introduced it to me. It's called The Bible Told Them So, How Southern Evangelicals Fought to Preserve White Supremacy uh, by J. Russell Hawkins. So I can't say this book so much changed my theology, but made me hyper aware of how easily the Bible can be taken out of context and used to to put down a group of people. Um, And I've, I've known this most of my adult Christian life, you know, I, I've learned about it in seminary. I, I've learned about it in different ways. I know the history of my former denomination, the United Methodist Church, and re- really even before it was United Methodist, the Methodist Episcopal Church, and how we had to split after the Civil War in that time frame, north and south, you know, for slavery, against slavery, all the things dealing with um, African Americans and people of color. But did not realize until I read this book how how recently that was still an issue mm-hmm. um, in, in the church, and and how people just kind of bought into it. Like they just they they would take bits and pieces of scripture. I can't quote them because it's been a couple of years since I read this. But like they would take just bits and pieces of scripture out of context and say, "Well, see, scripture says this," and so hence we are not we can't have. Yeah. blacks in our church or we can't have you know x y and z and it was yeah. just it was a very frustrating book to read yeah if i'm remembering correctly <clears throat> this book was it like originally an academic piece like somebody's doctorate work or came out of their doctorate work i feel like it might have been yeah so like if i'm remembering like it's a narrow and deep dive into just two denominations maybe in american history yeah and... baptist and methodist Episcopal. yeah and mm-hmm. so, like, I, I can remember reading it and part of me feeling, boy, I'm glad he didn't turn the light on Lutherans because I'm sure we don't come off any better. <laughs> um, but, like, 
the it's like he he brought the receipts like he he wasn't just like saying generically you know hey american yeah. history we had a rough time with racism um but that it was clearly documented with just these as two examples of how the bible was used to underwrite racial segregation and white supremacy and how once that marriage that unholy marriage happened to criticize segregation was therefore to criticize Christianity and to say you aren't Bible believing because look, you're criticizing mm -hmm. this thing that our church teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. And I think that you 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 sort of touched on that saying that this maybe wasn't a, so much a new insight uh, in theology about, hey, we shouldn't be racist, but it was maybe eye opening as to what happens when we marry a, a particular agenda with this is what the bible teaches now to criticize this is to criticize the bible therefore you must not be a bible believing christian if you disagree on this i mean like that's a difficult and dangerous and super pernicious temptation huh yeah and and to realize and again this is something not completely new but mm -hmm. we tend to put the whole civil rights movement and we want to put it further back in the history than what it really is yeah so I'm 40 years old. Some of these churches still were not integrating up to 20, even maybe close to 10 years before I was born. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's not that, it's not a 100-year-old history. Yep. It's yep. not Civil War history. It's not 200-year-old history. This is within a generation. Yeah. Um. I have paid attention in the last several years. I, I follow uh, Bernice King, Dr. King's daughter, on um, social media, and she has a habit around uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day um, of sharing, in particular, color photographs of her father, mm -hmm. and she'll make the point of saying, like, you need to exactly. see, like, this is not ancient history. This is not back in the olden days and everything was in black and white, but, like, this is, uh, you know, w within lifespans of people who are around today. Um, and that, uh, yeah, had, had Dr. King not been assassinated and would have lived today, he was the same age as Barbara Walters and Anne Frank. I mean, like, that's mm -hmm. a harrowing reality. Um, but, yeah, this isn't ancient history. That That's a difficult, a difficult thing to realize. And even though um, uh, the book focuses on um, uh, just particular denominations and often that gets focused in the American South to consider how many places north of the Mason-Dixon line still had racial segregation. I remember hearing stories. Right. We all lived in uh, the same county in western Pennsylvania for a while. And I remember hearing stories about when the public pool in that place <clears throat> in Pennsylvania was integrated um and to think like why was this ever not integrated and and yet that oh my goodness that had to happen and that it happened within people's living memory um yeah sort of it was it was a a culture shock thing for me so my, i've not read the book so is it just about integration it's about how both those two denominations the methodist episcopal church and the southern baptist church how official church documents uh, basically used um, mm -hmm. biblical cover or invented biblical cover as reasons to justify or, or propagate racial segregation as a tenet of faith. And so it, it looks at um, where in official church documents, and again, like these are, none of these are like papal encyclical. So this isn't, you know, quite like coming from the Pope, but like where you could see the paper trail of how, 
theologically this was made this is what you know god wants the mm -hmm. church to be racially segregated or god you know that sort of reinforcing white supremacy as a tenet of christianity um and to see it there in black and white is yeah this was actually what was taught not just hinted around or not just sort of shrugged at and not even just um christians well we don't talk about that because it's politics and we don't do politics but like where it was actively taught that racial segregation was god's will and this wasn't just the churches it was also like institution like schools right. higher education all that and well you said it's not you know papal it's not coming down it was discussion at annual conferences in the Methodist Episcopal right. Church. Right. So it wasn't just like local churches, it was whole conferences. Right. Because like, I feel like this is such a small case study. And like, I think that's sometimes really good and helpful to take a deep yeah. dive into something like this. But um, the, I, I think it would be really interesting to see a big picture of how has the Bible been used to prop up political agendas that don't necessarily align with Jesus's mm -hmm. agenda. Because sure. um, like that that kind of proof texting that I think that uh, uh, K, uh, J. Russell Hawkins is do using here of like, hey, look, look how they proof text the Bible to support um, segregation and racism. Um, you know, I think that similar tactics continue to happen oh, sure. often in the same denominations and in the same ways to, you know, support other things like um, anti-vaccines or um, mm -hmm. racism, sexism, you know, still. Um, mm -hmm. It would be kind of interesting to see, like, well, how has this tactic been used yeah. Yeah. throughout the years? Yeah. It this all calls to mind to me too. Uh, something I remember from reading, um, oh, a few years ago now. Um, this would have been one of Ibram Kendi's books. I can't, it might have been his uh, "How to Be an Anti-Racist" or uh, from Stamped in the Beginning, from the beginning. But where he talks about how often people assume that um, race, we start with racist ideas and then move toward racist policies that flow out of that. Like we think first and then act. And he says, more often what actually happens is self-interest leads a group of people to say, we want to do this to other people. How can we justify that? And then you sort of like backfill mm -hmm. with, um, a justification and, um, to see that that's how scriptures have gotten used. Like, I, I, I think it's important to make a distinction because I, I don't think that the witness of the Christian scriptures endorses racism or segregation or things like that. So I don't think it's that the problem is the, with the Bible. I think the problem is if you've got a group of people convinced, here's what we think is right, how can we justify that? And again, maybe not even realizing that it is being that manipulative, but how the Bible then sort of gets backfilled in to be support for something that we've kind of already decided, here's what we want it to say. Now, how do we make the Bible say that? Um, and that that's often how things are, that sort of self-interest, whether individually or a group, here's what I want to say. How do I make a Bible verse, you know, do that work for me? And how then it becomes, you can't question it because the Bible verse said it. And yeah, I think that's exactly what this book pulls out is what they yeah. did. Yeah. It, it, I always find it so interesting how there's often that grain of truth. Like just looking at the cover of the Bible told them so they have uh, like a woman mm -hmm. is holding up um, a woman or a young girl. I can't tell is holding up a sign that says cursed is the man who integrates. And then it has probably a scripture citation, but that, yeah. I can't read it. Um, and that is in the Bible. 
right it, except it, it, like it's there, but it's not really like talking about like oh in our schools and in our churches you know right. white people and black people can't sit next to each other like that's not what that story is about right. and that's right. not the only viewpoint in the bible right but they're mm-hmm. lifting it up as like see what god said like right but it often just starts with that grain of truth yeah. like yeah. yes this is in the bible it isn't something that just was made up but that's just looking at one little tiny verse and ignoring the context i think that's another important piece that this uh helped me to, to see when i read this book uh it's sort of as as you talked about erica that maybe it wasn't new theology but it was a window on how collectively we aren't great at reading the bible and right. how there are different approaches to reading the Bible. And one approach that is out there is if I find it in one spot, that's evidence that this is God's opinion rather than sometimes scripture speaks with a a variety of voices on any given subject. And they were either context dependent or, um, you know, that you get sort of things in tension and in harmony uh, with each other. And instead of, I found the one verse that says what I think I want it to say, I'm going to stop reading. Um, that maybe we were called more responsibly to go, yep, there was this point in ancient Israel's history where they were, you know, separating from interracial or interreligious marriages or something like that. Whether that was a for all time kind of a thing or not, look at here's this much broader picture that also includes the New Testament saying God is now including Gentiles, like that we often stop the discussion when we found what we think we were looking for, rather than maybe I should read further or maybe I should read more widely and see how it fits in a bigger story. So Sarah, having the book physically in front of me, that scripture passage is Jeremiah eleven three through six, and I so I looked it up. Thanks. I have no idea where they got that out of Jeremiah eleven three through six. <laughs> oh, not that's a clue. I was giving them like the grain, like a grain of salt. But I mean, no, it, it talks about not... bringing them out of Egypt and out of the iron smelting furnace, I, but nothing about like yeah. So God pulled them out of Egypt. He pulled them out of a foreign place, but like. Right. I mean, no. there have been times in the Old Testament where there was a very strong strain of like, you need to be marrying fellow Israelites and not right. like yeah. the foreigners because like the fear was your children would start worshiping foreign gods right. and start losing that mm-hmm. uh, like identity as mm-hmm. children of God. Um, like that's definitely there, but that's often voices because again in real life in real time people were marrying moabites or um you know other folks uh but then that's ignoring the stories like ruth where here is this moabite woman who is the grandmother uh, or somebody of david like is an important Mm -hmm. person without her we wouldn't have king david we wouldn't have jesus i mean we might we probably would because with god everything is possible but you know what i mean like yeah yeah yeah. god chose to have this person in this family tree like yeah and it's interesting most of the scriptures if i remember correctly that they pulled out of here are old testament scriptures right and not to say that we're not like that we don't believe in the old testament we don't hold the old testament to be you know part of the holy scriptures and everything we can gain information from that I'm not saying that, but like, if you, all you have to do is look at the New Testament. You mentioned Ruth. Look at the genealogy of Jesus in Mm -hmm. Matthew 1. 
there were four women included there. Three of them were not Israelites. Right. Like, and you know. To yeah. me, it seems like the the sweep of the whole New Testament. I mean, you, you get it beginning with Jesus' ministry, but it becomes pretty clear uh, from the entire back half. Like This was a movement that <clears throat> intentionally included people of every nation and background and skin color right. and, and like and that like this was what made Christianity distinct from ancient national Israel, which was bound up with a national government and a king and a palace and things like that. Um, yeah, it, to, to me, it, it, it seems like uh, it is indicative. It, it tells something interesting when a movement um, that, that claims Christian affiliation gets its primary text basis from like only um, Old Testament, uh, especially uh, Torah, you know, a book, you know, like law mm -hmm. commandments for how ancient Israel is supposed to operate. Almost like, yeah, we can pull, you know, pull those whole hog and just, you know, apply them to our current circumstance as though our current circumstance is a national theocracy in the Bronze Age. Um, and yeah, th th I think I think that the, the Jesus question really, really is, is is an important one for how we do how we how we take pieces from ancient Israel's story and and either apply them or misapply them in the in the our context. Yeah. So um, I, I'm I'm curious, uh, Erica. It sounds like as you read this book, there was a certain amount of anger and frustration at your own tradition. Um, mm -hmm. What do you What do you do with that uh, once you've read it? I mean, like I and I read I read the book too and felt anger and frustration at Christianity broadly. Maybe not you know right in my own house, but knowing that there were the same sim similar kinds of things going on in in Lutheranism too, maybe. Um, but what what do you do with that anger or sadness or disappointment? What what where, where do you go with that? I guess you know, doing everything in my power as a pastor to make sure that that does not continue within mm -hmm. my tradition. Mm -hmm. And I I I mean I don't hold any type of position um, either in the United Methodist Church or in the Global Methodist Church where I have a whole lot of say over a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, but just you know, making making folks aware of our history, you sure. know, so that we don't repeat it, I think would probably be the biggest thing. Because um, I, I see as a student of history, as somebody who's always enjoyed history, I've seen too much of it repeated in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, you know, we need to stop doing that, period. But like, this mm -hmm. is particularly one area in which... Yeah. Um, my own denomination, my own tradition has been complicit in mm -hmm. and to try to make sure that that no longer happens, at least in, in my sphere of influence. Yeah. To me, it sounds like that also then gives us, uh, as pastors who do work in teaching the scriptures, the opportunity to model a different way of like teaching or, you know, teaching people how to read and study the Bible too. And that it might even be that in other subjects or Bible studies and other topics or in other books, um, we're teaching the skills about, okay, let's not just proof text, right? And like, and to say like, here's why careful Bible reading is important. Maybe it doesn't seem like it makes a big difference when you're reading this parable or that parable or this passage of Paul, but you do it well here so that then we've got the skills. And when somebody says, but I found this verse that says that we should be racially segregated. And hold on here that like it, mm -hmm. this gives us, it, it gives a clarity about why uh, part of being a, a good pastor and Bible teacher is teaching people how to read the Bible, not just here's what this passage means, but here are the skills so that other people can read well and wisely and intelligently on their own. 
a professor from my seminary, I never had him, but he was famous for this one phrase that he would say all the time. And it was so true after reading this book. He said, a text taken out of context is a pretext to make it say whatever you want it to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, reading this book was just like, oh my gosh, look at this. Like they've taken these verses out of their original context to then backfill that that belief that they have, that idea that they have that we need to be racially segregated. Oh, look, I found a text that if I pull it out and take it away from everything around it, mm-hmm. it says exactly what I want it to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, Sarah, have there been times where you've had, maybe not with this book, if you haven't read this particular one, but similar kind of experience where like, um reading a book made you mad or angry and like you didn't know like how how do you use anger when you read something like that sometimes my anger makes me realize that it's hitting a little bit too close to home oh okay okay like um yeah because the book that I'm planning on talking about in a few weeks it parts of it made me angry and um it's I don't want to give it away. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, part like... of it made me, uh, but yeah, oftentimes when I'm angry, it's because it's hitting a little bit too close to home mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it either is going to have direct impacts on my life in ways that I do not want, mm-hmm. or there's been a failing on my part. Um, oftentimes that's why I get angry. I appreciate you saying that because like as we're talking about this book in particular of Erica's I I know like I felt the temptation when I was reading it to be like oh good he's not going to talk about Lutherans it's only going to be about the Southern Baptist boy (laughs) because it is it easy to make somebody else into the villain right um Uh and like I think about um how often in Jesus storytelling like um he'll you know clearly be taking shots at you know the the pharisees or the sadducees and how the temptation as a 21st century christian reading is go yeah those people were terrible i'm so glad i don't have this problem and yet to completely miss the point that no like this forces me to look now at myself about like oh where am i falling into the very same trap where am i in the very same mode um Mm -hmm. as we're recording i'm thinking about how this coming sunday I think in the Revised Common Lectionary, the uh, the first reading is um, the third chapter of Jonah, when God decides not to destroy Nineveh, and um, Jonah is all upset about it. Um, and then, you know, the, the last part of the book is, is God uh, having to tell Jonah, like, you know, why were you so upset that I was merciful to people you didn't think were worthy or acceptable? And how often I've had conversations with people studying that story about, like, yeah, yeah, Jonah, he was really bigoted. Man, Jonah really had those problems. And like, we, it's so easy to leave the conversation there and to go like, um, boy, it's a good thing we've all learned not to ever do that. And like, nope, this points right back at us where are we still doing that same thing. Um, and that's always a harder leap because it requires sort of the, the faithful imagination of saying, okay, in the original context, this was talking about Ninevites, but maybe this isn't just about Ninevites. <laughs> maybe we continue to wrestle with this. Uh, and that's hard. I think also I get angry when I feel like I can't do anything to affect mm-hmm. change, like positive change. Yeah. Um, I I just had a colleague share a video and it was a... Um, it was a propaganda video for Trump. And like the title of the video was something like God created Trump. And when they first saw that she had sent this, 
my brain immediately went to, oh, this video is going to remind us that Trump was also created by God and is also therefore a beloved child of God. And yeah, we like, we, we can like, like, yeah, all right. That's something to wrestle with is like, this is like, he is also a beloved child of God. No, that's not what the video was. The nope. video was, it, it wasn't proof texting per se, because it wasn't lifting up a actual verse from the Bible, but rather using like patterns and rhythms and language of the Bible to kind of make a point of like, ooh, God looked down and saw these terrible things happening in the US. And so God created Trump to do X, Y, and Z. And it was a very like this kind of same pattern of like, right. God saw this bad thing. And so therefore God gave us Trump. And it like was very, at times kind of reminding me of like, Old Testament language around judges of like, oh, when the people did whatever they wanted, um, but it was like the wrong thing, right. God would send in a judge and help to correct the people. But then at times also, it was very reminiscent of like, messianic right. language mm -hmm. of like, right. he is here to save us. And it was horrifying. And right. so I got angry at that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, to me, I look at this video, and it is just full of lies about how his first presidency went and what his work ethic was and how kind he is. And I'm just like, really, was we like paying attention to completely different news outlets? Like, <laughs> like, these are lies. How can people believe this? And yet, people did and do believe mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. narrative that's mm -hmm. completely rewriting history. And so like that made me angry because I don't know how to affect change in this situation. And sometimes it's frustrating when there are things like that are out there in the world and you feel like if you call attention to them, are you giving them more oxygen to the to feed the fire? Is it easier to ignore? But is ignoring, um, you know, like uh, I don't want to have to deal with this or am I, you know, is it is 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 ignoring a strategic self-preservation like I, I don't want to get called out for having to address this or is it I don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, the best way to stop a dumpster fire is to not give it oxygen or fuel anymore. That's tough. It's also like I keep being reminded of um, to be silent in the face of evil is evil itself. Right. But yet at the same time, I have this vocation, this uh, this career, which says that I shouldn't really be doing anything with politics and I really shouldn't be influencing my people on how they should vote. So if I point out what I believe is evil will that in like mm -hmm. will that affect my relationship negatively with my congregation mm -hmm. because they think that this is me telling them who to vote for or to not right. vote for right. when like from the pulpit because you can argue like even if i'm not standing in the pulpit delivering a sermon even if i'm just doing something on social media because of my position that's still from the pulpit like mm -hmm. it's a very tough line <clears throat> to walk i think sure. and yeah so then that also makes me angry because i sometimes sure. feel like i could do more good if i wasn't in my career sure politically but like also i don't really want to do politics i just right. don't right 
I just think that there are some politicians who should not be politicians because they are not good people. <laughs> I so, guess I wonder. Go ahead, Erica. Sarah, Sarah, you make a lot of good points, which I I wrestle with too. You know, how much do you say? What do you say? Where where do you say it? How do you say it? And it reminds me of some of the people in this book, some of the pastors yeah. in this book, who who spoke out and were kicked out of their churches. Mm-hmm. You know, and like that's that's my struggle with with speaking out about um not so much segregation you know that's i think a, a topic that i can easily speak out about but even topics like immigration sometimes in, in the places where i have served mm-hmm. it is it, it's hard to speak about um it's hard to speak about what's going on with israel and palestine because of just what what's going on and like you know, once you pick a side, then what does that mean to your relationship with the people that you're serving? Mm-hmm. Also, how did we get to a point in this country where saying I'm against genocide somehow became a political statement? Right. Because I-, I feel like that's kind of where we got yeah. with especially talking about Israel and Palestine. Like, yeah, I feel like in certain places you cannot say that without being Mm -hmm. being like, you don't support Israel, then you don't support U.S. ideals. And it's like, what? No, I just don't support genocide. Right, right. To me. But yeah, I agree. Like, it's. It's it's so helpful, I think, Erica, that you you made that connection to this, to the, the, the book that prompts our conversation here. Because exactly like what, what is now relatively easier, well, easier to talk about and to say, mm-hmm. clearly, yep, segregation is bad, um, that that was not just uh, much more controversial, but yeah, it was a costly stand to take. Um, and the the question back in the 60s, you know, uh, was not, you know, it, 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 it clearly everybody's like, yep, this is, this has a political implication, but it, I don't think it was seen as like um, strictly partisan, like one party over another. And maybe that's an important difference is to say, like, mm-hmm. um, none of us are called to be partisan hacks or a particular uh, party to, you know, tone one party's agenda all the time. Uh, no questions. But to say the gospel sometimes does make political um uh, implications or does carry, you know, uh, implications for how we see and treat other human beings. Um, so that may not boil down to um, who should you vote for, but what kind of people should we be all the time, not just when it's an election year. And maybe that's a piece of how we integrate our, I, I guess, how we use our voices like all the time. So that it doesn't just come across like you're a partisan hack and you're telling me who to vote for. No, it's you should be seeing in all of my life all the time. Um, here are the things that you can hear me say are important and why I'm convinced mm-hmm. that this is, you know, uh, at the, the, the a matter of the gospel is at stake, that kind of thing. But I think we've unfortunately gotten so politicized that even if you say that all the time, if you say that the other three years sure. outside of a presidential mm-hmm. election year, when you continue to say it then in the presidential election year, sure, it becomes politicized. Yeah, and I guess I I, I guess the the question that I would raise, and I, I don't say this as someone who's got it all worked out or has easy answers, but to say I think it's like uh, at at some point any one of us has to decide can we not just look other people in the eye, but can we look ourselves in the mirror and like the things mm-hmm. that are, uh, you know the 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 
older language of the church is what is status confessionis? Like what is what is a deal breaker kind of a moment where like if if I don't speak up about this, like I've lost the thread of what the gospel, you know, is actually about. Um, and I think about um, you know, a, a generation before the the civil rights movement in the 60s when it was resisting Nazis. And I think about like how in that era, again, it seems pretty obvious to us now to say, yeah, everybody should be anti-Nazi when like in the German church in the 30s, uh, there was a whole variety of perspectives, some that were perfectly comfortable get swallowed up by Hitler's Reichskirche, uh, and then others who are like, well, let's just not say anything because we don't, and again, with that same language of, we don't want to be political, mm -hmm. um, and especially for Lutherans who have 500 year history of let the state be the state, let the church be the church, and never the twain shall meet, um, that meant that for a lot of people, they had good, solid confessional supports for why they weren't going to say Hitler should not take over the church. Um, uh, and yet, I mean, they, they, they were silent. Um, and then there were f folks like, you know, the handful of, uh, you know, people in the confessing church or or Bonhoeffer or Karl Barth um, who were willing to say, yeah, in most cases, we're not here to weigh in government policy, but the the uh, government can't, uh, you know, we, we, we can't take we, we can't be OK with Hitler. Um, and then th similarly in the, in the civil rights movement in the sixties, there were folks who said, this is one of those sort of status confessionis moments. And if I don't speak out on this, um, I will, I will have lost something of, of my own integrity, of my own character. I, I remember, oh boy, I'm not, I, I can't remember who, who said it, but I can remember running across uh, some insights some years ago, Sarah, kind of wrestling with the same thing you mentioned about like, how do you affect any kind of change or how do you do that? And the, the the insight that sticks with me is somebody said something like, there are times when I have to speak up about something, not because I'm convinced I'll change other people, but because if I don't speak up, I will be changed for the worse. That like something will die mm -hmm. inside me um, that that uh, needs that need yeah, needs to be able to say, no, this is not okay, or no, this is important, that that kind of thing. And I I guess when I when I think about that, it, it reminds me um that sometimes it's it's just a matter of where the places where we find ourselves in those Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other kind of moments, you know, and it may not be that it makes things easier for us. And it may not be that uh, it changes anybody else's perspective, but it means that like we were clear on what we, where we needed to be clear. One of the things that's helpful about a book like this one that you're highlighting for us, Erica, is the way it forces us to do a little bit of thinking about, yeah, mm -hmm. if we had lived 60 years ago, what would we have said? What would we have done? And almost to use those as like a, a place for a, a thought experiment, like a laboratory. Yeah, if I had lived in this time, what would I have done? How would I have? And then to make that move of how will I decide in the place and time where I live, where are the places I need to speak up, or where are the places that um, I can be flexible, or where are the places where I can look to be gracious with, to people with whom I disagree one of the things I always found really helpful about Dr. King's voice in in all that is the way he would always talk about how the change they were affecting wasn't meant to be an us versus them, but that even the ones who were seen as the oppressors are getting bent by their racism and distorted by racism as well. And that the intention of ending segregation wasn't just to help people of color, but also that people who were in the position of um, 
reinforcing a system of segregation didn't realize how they were being distorted by it, that their souls were getting bent out of shape by it. And so the goal is for everybody to be made well and that everybody suffers in different ways in situations and systems of injustice. And that has a way of preventing it from being, I picked one side over another, but to say, I'm wanting everybody to be well here. And you don't realize sometimes the, the folks who are trapped in say racism or segregation don't realize how they're also distorted by it as well and made to hate people uh, or see themselves as superior to people. And that's breaking relationship uh, in their lives, even if they don't realize it. Anything else you would call our attention to about this book or that you think uh, are helpful for us to say about your, your the way it's affected your faith life? I, I think we've covered most of it. I just, I'd recommend everybody read this book. It's not long, um, but it is, it's not easy. And mm -hmm. I'll fully admit that it's not an easy read, regardless of your denominational background or lack thereof. Um, but I think if you have any interest in history, any interest in um, racial issues, it's it's something that everybody should read. If for nothing else, just to be more aware of how integrated this idea was, not just in society, but especially into the church. Mm -hmm. So thanks for featuring for us uh, today. The Bible told them so uh, by J. Russell Hawkins. Um, next time, we're going to be taking a look at another book uh, from one of our life stories and how it's shaped our faith. And um, we hope you'll join us again for more conversation here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all. Bye. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.